Hey everyone, I'm Yasmin Nori and you're listening to the Behind Her Empire podcast. I'm on a mission to showcase successful self-made women who share honest stories and lessons of what it really takes to create the life you want and build your own empire. If you've been listening to the show, you know, just like you, I've been on my own personal journey to build my empire. I started my business, Bia, to help women tackle their period problems and hormonal imbalances using a natural whole foods approach. If you're suffering from bad cramps, irregular periods, fatigue, bloating, stay tuned because a little bit later in the podcast, I'll share a bit more about my company, Bia. But for now, let's jump into today's episode. I want to welcome this week's guest, Karone Proshin, to our show today. Karone is the founder and CEO of Simply, a premium confections brand known for its unusually simple and clean products. In 2013, when Karone was switching a lot of her personal care, beauty, and cleaning products to more natural and clean options, she realized one thing she used often almost every day which was gum was a category that was never disrupted she dove into the research to learn more about what goes into conventional chewing gum and was surprised to find that most gum on the market uses a base that has plastic in it usually called gum base on the labels she also found out that the fda allows gums to have several artificial ingredients like aspartame plus artificial flavors and colors as well she made it her mission to do something about it and her first product simply gum was born at that time. The gum was a huge success, and after seeing the demand for Simply's unusually simple ingredients, the brand has evolved to include more premium items, including mints, really real gummies, and chocolate date bars. In this week's episode, Caron talks to us about how she created Simply's first ever gum from her small New York kitchen, experimenting with chiclet, a natural alternative to gum base for over a year. She also shares her experience pivoting from her very successful finance career to running her own business a little bit later in her life, what it takes to create a strong brand and how she got the product out there with pure hustle in the early days, which ended up landing her in Whole Foods. We get into the details of how she manufactured the product from her apartment to then expanding to a commercial kitchen and now owning their own factory and the biggest mistakes and learnings she's had along the way. Caron also tells us how she got into many nationwide retailers, the importance of patience in your business journey, why you shouldn't take rejections personally, and so much more. Welcome to the show, Carone. I actually was just thinking about this before the podcast, but I was like, how have I heard of your brand? I'm a big fan. And my husband, I remember when we were dating years ago, he would always have your gum. I'm like, what is this gum? I've never heard about it. So he's a big fan too. So I'm excited that you're here. And I can't wait to jump into your story. You have such a well-rounded experience in terms of working in corporate, going to business school, but then also being super scrappy when it came to starting a business, which I'm very passionate about. So there's a lot for us to dig into. But before we go into your story, I'd love to hear about, you know, what do you think really separates someone who gives up and those that have the grit to keep going? Because your story, which we'll get into, is, is just incredible in the grit aspect. Yeah. You know, it's an interesting question. I don't know. I guess you just have to really want it. And I think that I was at a point in my life when I really, really wanted to make it work for better or worse. And, you know, sometimes actually it's okay to stop and give up, right? If the idea is not a good one and you're getting feedback that this isn't the right path, you know, sometimes it's not a bad thing to actually listen to Mm -hmm. other people uh, and to take that into account and pivot or make adjustments as necessary. But ultimately, you know, I was very stubborn and (laughs) I wanted to get this thing done and I was getting good 
indications as well. Mm-hmm. And so that enabled me to keep going and it you know gave me the confidence that there really was something here. And it goes back to what you said initially uh, in terms of just being scrappy. And, and that's, that's really what this came down to. I literally mm-hmm. just started taking the products door to door and, you know, we'll mm-hmm. get into the origin story and all of that. But ultimately that's, you know, that's how we started. And I just kept on, kept on going. Yeah. And you mentioned something actually really good because you're right. There's actually nothing wrong with giving up if there aren't those, you know, momentum flags or, or, or indication of people loving your product. You know, it's in, it's good to pivot. It's good to try something else. It's good to start something else. So I love that you mentioned that because I think sometimes people might just stay in one lane when maybe there could be so much opportunity if they switched or pivoted. Um, and, you know, even in my career, I've, I've definitely jumped around a lot and have seen that. But let's go back to, you know, the very early days. I know you grew up in San Francisco, which is like the tech hub, startup hub. But what I find so interesting is that you actually didn't dive into the world of startup life or entrepreneurship. So tell me more about what you thought you wanted for yourself kind of growing up in that environment or w- within your family? Well, I think, yeah, I, I, even though I grew up in San Francisco, I, I, I mean, I think I was intrigued by being an entrepreneur um, and intrigued by the stories that I was seeing around me. And so I think that is when the seed was planted. But then I actually went on this very traditional path once I got to college and, you know, did the analyst program in investment banking like you did and, you know, was was thinking that that was going to be my path, a more traditional corporate path. And it wasn't until a few years after business school even that I finally was like, you know what, this actually really isn't for me. Hmm. I think that I am an entrepreneur at heart. I want to do my own thing. I want to take that risk, but it took me a long time to get there because I was risk averse for a very long time and I was more cautious. And so it took me a while and that's okay. You know, sometimes it takes us a long time to get there, but it's never too late to start your own thing. And so even though I started mine, you know, later than a lot of others, you know, who were doing so in San Francisco, for example, I I knew that I wanted to take that leap. That resonates so much, even with my story. I, you know, was in finance and in tech and just dabbled around. And I, I always knew I wanted to start something, but I don't think I was ready yet, or I didn't have the idea. Like the time Timing in the universe, just it wasn't ready until early 30s. So it's so interesting because I know you also, quote unquote, followed the herd, right? You went to an amazing business school. You got a great job. Sometimes the longer you are in a career, the harder it is to leave because you're like, I've built my reputation. I've built my network. What was that spark where you're like, all right, you know, this is just not for me. I've been thinking about it, but it's actually time to do something. It helped that I I wasn't loving the corporate job that I was in. That does help. (laughs) And so it was kind of like, look, you know, I can go try to find something else. Or maybe this is a good time to just take that entrepreneurial leap. And so I think that's for me what did it. You're right that had I been loving my corporate job, it would have been harder to leave and and to and to make that transition. But I think it helped that I wasn't enjoying it. Mm-hmm. And that to me also revealed that that wasn't my path and that I wanted to experiment. And so that's when I took the leap. And I and, and like you said, up until that point, I didn't really have an idea per se, mm-hmm. right? So it was more just enamored with the concept of being an entrepreneur, but I didn't have the idea anything specific. And then it kind of all came together where I was looking to leave. I wanted to do something entrepreneurial. I started thinking and just being more observant about things around me. And um, I came upon this idea for natural chewing gum because I was starting to get into natural 
products in all aspects of my life, including cleaning products and beauty products and all that. And so I started buying organic foods and, and doing the whole thing. But I realized that my gum that I was chewing was still uh, very synthetic. And so I started doing research and sure enough, regular gum is made of plastic. So you're literally yeah. chewing a piece of plastic, which most people don't realize. And that was news to me. And I tried to find a natural gum and there wasn't one. And so that was really this aha moment for me because I was like, why is there no natural option here when every other food category does have a more natural option? And so that made me think, okay, this could actually be a business idea here. There is this void in the market where this thing just doesn't even exist. And so that's really what the catalyst was. Yeah. And I love that you said, because we have a lot of women who listen in on the podcast they're, that they're like, you know, I don't love my job. I don't have an idea. And I definitely was there for years. Right. But I love what you said. Like you were just observant because I think that's when the ideas kind of click. It's like when you genuinely are ready, you just hate your job that much. You're like, I'm not ready to jump to another company. And you're like, I got to figure it out. And you kind of step back and you're just observing everything, whether it's your own problems, which, you know, how your business came, how my business came. And I love that. And it sounds so simple, but I feel like if you can step into that, if you're ready and just kind of observe different issues, do research like you did. And so you come across this potential gum idea, you know, you definitely didn't quit your job right then and there. So tell me more about the impetus between you get this idea to kind of, you know, experimenting in your kitchen and, and whatnot. Yeah. So I started experimenting in my kitchen and it took a long time, you know, because I was doing it on the side. It probably took a year of just sort of thinking about it, experimenting with the formula in my kitchen, hand making it, um, and trying to come up with a packaging and a brand name and all of that. And actually the first step that I took, which I've, you know, forgotten, <laughs> I sometimes yeah. forget, is I yeah. actually listed it on Kickstarter. Oh, interesting. And yeah. And so, and that was a really good beginning step for me because, um, so I didn't go straight into raising money or anything, but I listed it on Kickstarter because I wanted to see, is this something people will even sign up for? And, you know, we had a, a, a modest sort of launch on Kickstarter. I don't know, maybe we pre-sold like 20,000 or 30,000 worth oh, wow. of product, yeah. but that was still significant. And I was like, wow, okay. 20,000 people nearly, I don't know if it was like a dollar a pack, or whatever it was, but you know, some thousands, you know, number of thousands of people want this product. This is interesting. And then of course, what that did was it forced me to start actually, to actually make the product and deliver it by a certain deadline, because now I was on the hook for it. And so that was also a great forcing function. So I got my act together. I made the product, I shipped it out, you know, hand packed it, hand shipped it and really got great feedback from Kickstarter. And then I used those funds to reinvest in the business. And I started walking it around to local stores in New York, which was where I was, where the company is based. And the first store that I was able to get it in was the Whole Foods at Columbus Circle. And uh, that was back when individual stores could make those kinds of decisions. And, um, and it started flying off the shelf. And that's when I realized, okay, there is really something here 
And that's when I went out and raised some money from angel investors. Got it. Okay. So I have a million questions right here. Just going back to one thing that you said that I loved is you put it on Kickstarter and there was a deadline. There's something about a deadline where you have to get it out because you can sit and think about the packaging and how you're like, you can spend out days, weeks, months on the littlest things. But when you have a deadline, you got to get it out. So I don't know if you remember that time frame because you have beautiful branding and you're very smart and intentional. Like, did you ever overthink anything at that time or did that deadline just kind of push you to be like, I got to get it out? Well, yeah, I mean, we, I mean, absolutely. I, I, we overthink things all the time in terms of design and packaging. And so um, it is true. And so at the time, yeah, I had been going back and forth on it on my own for months. And so, um, so it really was helpful to have that deadline. And then it was like, okay, you know, we're, we're going to go with this and it was good. And I, but I, I did take that time though. I, you know, I didn't of course list it on Kickstarter until there was a sort of skeleton framework in place. Um, but yeah, it was really helpful. And on the packaging, I'm glad you noticed that because uh, our look is, is minimal, but yeah. it's something that's still very accessible. And we wanted it to show people that this was different, that it's natural and it's very hard to do minimalism right. And so uh, it did take a really long time to come up with that package and to come up with the name uh, and all of that. So, um, but we, I, you know, I think that the, the brand DNA that was formed there still is carried through today. And, you know, I'm really proud of where the brand has gone. We've now expanded into new items and all that, which I'll talk about. But um, our, our brand DNA has very much stayed the same. And so that simplicity and authenticity, I think, really does come through in that package. I love the branding. It definitely stands out when you see it. You're like, oh, that's a gum, like very simple, like Whole Foods, like clean. I, it, it definitely gives you a feeling. So, you know, you don't have a background in food. And how did you even dabble in it? Like you're creating gum from your kitchen. I wouldn't even know where to start. So what did that process look like? And how long did it take you to nail down the potential product? It took months. And um, and I just, you know, I, again, I was just sort of obsessed with this thing mm-hmm. and, and trying to get it made. And so I looked at what gum used to be made of. And I looked at the current ingredients and I kind of just reverse engineered it. And so I took out all the synthetic things and then I, put in natural things. So instead of artificial flavor, I found natural essential oils. Instead of artificial sweeteners, I was like, let me just use organic raw cane sugar. And so it was a lot of swapping. And for the base, instead of plastic, I chose chicle, which is a tree sap. And that's what gum used to be made of back in the 1950s uh, before the large companies switched to plastic. So I ordered some chicle, some tree sap, and had no idea what the proportions should be in terms of the recipe, because that's, of course, not listed or printed anywhere. And yeah. so just did a lot of trial and error. It was a lot of trial and error. And so it did take, as I said, it took close to a year to even get that recipe. And of course, I wasn't doing it 20 hours a day because I still did have a day job, but it took a really long time. But, you know, finally got it done. And it's just kind of that, uh, I, you know, I don't know how I was so confident in terms of just getting it out there, even though I didn't have that food background, but I did. And then, and then it worked. 
Hey everyone, it's Yasmin here. In 2020, I was struggling with some debilitating health stuff. I just got off birth control and suddenly I had acne, mood swings, breast tenderness, and really painful periods. I tried so many things, but the one thing that worked was something called seed cycling. I know you're probably thinking, seed cycling? What the heck is that? It's a natural way to support your hormones using four specific seeds throughout your cycle. The challenge is that seed cycling can be a little complicated to do and kind of time consuming. So I decided to make an organic seed cycling product that is so easy to use, we make it effortless effortless for anyone to get started today. It's called Bia and it's a super easy way to add something powerful to your diet to support your hormones, regulate your cycle, and bring back balance. To learn more about Bia and join our community with thousands of incredible women all over the world, go to BiaWellness.com and that's spelled B-E-E-Y-A Wellness.com and check out the show notes for our promo code to get $10 off your first purchase. Thanks so much for listening and now let's get back to today's episode. There's something about when you're really excited and obsessed about the idea you're like I'm gonna do whatever it takes to like get it out you know like even my experience like it's funny to even think you forget about those moments and like I couldn't find a co-packer and I was like all right I'm just gonna buy a bunch of machinery and put it in my kitchen and mess around for the beta like you just figure it out when you really want something so there's like a force of nature that comes <laughs> within you it's to- true to make That's it happen. Right. Yeah. And I'm so curious because taste is something that is really tricky, right? It's so subjective. Everybody has their own opinion. So how did you dial in the taste for your first product? Yeah. I mean, you know, I, so, well, another really, I think interesting thing that I did was that, so I had the Kickstarter and, and got feedback from that Kickstarter. So okay. I used that feedback to help iterate upon the recipe, but of course I had friends and family trialing it and tasting it um, and giving feedback. And, uh, but that was, that first formulation was very much to my palate. And I think that over time, I've since adjusted it to take into account kind of the broader, more mass um, appeal. So over the years, we've made little adjustments. We've made it a little bit sweeter. Um, We've made it a bit less soft. I really liked a less sweet, kind of very soft uh, gum at the beginning, but um, we did take into account what other people wanted. And one thing that I did too early on was that I listed it on Amazon Marketplace. People forget Amazon's a marketplace. You can list anything that you want on Amazon. And so I listed it on Amazon and right away started getting really great feedback on Amazon too from the reviews and very helpful feedback as well. And I was able to then take that feedback to iterate on the product. Amazing. Yeah, you forget about Amazon and you were pretty early, like it was almost a decade ago, right? That you launched the business. Oh my goodness. What, That's what right. Is- so Amazon has actually been a really great partner for us and I've continued to grow on Amazon year over year. It's such a large platform that you really get access to so many people off the bat. So that was mm. really great for our exposure. And it's something that I would recommend to any entrepreneur with a physical product, uh, a CPG product. If they want to get a lot of feedback right away on Amazon, not to mention sales, because you actually, I mean, it was a real revenue driver and that those funds helped fund the rest of the business, really. It's it's interesting that you bring up Amazon. We're not, on, my company's not on Amazon, but I've had a few people in the past six months mention it. So I'm like, all right, it's a sign to explore it. And I'm always curious because it is a marketplace. So how did you create awareness, right? Were you running ads? Like what really helped you? Because once you post it, it doesn't necessarily mean like people are going to automatically come. So how did you kind of drive demand early on? So early on, um, yeah, we did do ads. 
and and with the ads our return was very high because you know on amazon people are looking to shop so it's a very intentional search if someone's searching for gum they want to buy gum so the return on those ads was actually quite high so we did spend um a little bit on ads at the beginning and then over the years we spent more and more uh, at the beginning, there weren't that many other tools, but over the years, again, now they have so many different tools. There's Amazon stores and there's um, videos that you can do. And there are a lot of free tools as well, a lot of levers now. So I think that for anyone who's aspiring to get their product into the marketplace, uh, it was an invaluable tool for us. Mm-hmm. Amazing. I love that. It was so early in your journey too. So you go to Whole Foods. It's so interesting. I actually just had um, the founder of Sweet Lauren on my podcast. She actually started her business probably around the same time as you. And she got into that Whole Foods Columbus circle and she has like oh. a cookie dough. And she yeah. mentioned she met a buyer and it's very serendipitous. So tell me more, you know, that is big to get into Whole Foods, but you just kind of walked in there. Like, how did you even start the relationship and any learnings from that experience? Well, actually, you know, one learning is to talk to as many people as you can, because it actually didn't occur to me at the beginning that I could just even walk into a Whole Foods and sell it, right? You would never even think of that. And so I was thinking about small stores, little mom and pop stores, but I had lunch with a friend and he's not in the food industry, but he, we were just brainstorming. He was like, Corona. And he pushed me. I still remember him, Rohit. He said, go just take your product into Whole Foods, just go in and and sell it in. Who knows? And I was like, you know what? I never thought of that. But yeah, why not? Why not just walk in (laughs) and and try? And so he actually gave me the idea. And so then I started walking into the Whole Foods stores. And, uh, you know, sometimes it's it's very hard to find the buyer on the floor. I walked into a bunch of them and didn't really make any traction. But the Columbus Circle one happened to get in touch with the manager who then said, okay, well, meet this buyer over here and found the right guy who was an assistant buyer in candy. And he's the one who I worked with to get it in. So, and even that process took probably eight or 10 months from when I first met him to then doing all the paperwork and actually getting it in. But uh, it was, I think the lesson there is patience because it did take a long time, but also to just talk to people and network and get your idea out there because people have really good suggestions. And again, my friend wasn't even in the food business, but in talking about it with him, he's the one who actually planted that seed in my head. I love that. And I feel like I'm a broken record player on this podcast because I'm very passionate about like share your idea with people because I learn and get things done by hearing your experience, talking to different people. Like my brain operates like that. And I think some people hold their ideas too close, but if you put it out there, like so many people have different ideas that you, like you said, you didn't even think like the most simple thing. Sometimes you don't even think about just walking into a Whole Foods until someone tells you, you're like, oh yeah, duh. Like exactly, that sounds exactly. great. Or even like Amazon. I'm like, good point. I don't know why we're not on, you know, like simple things. So I love that you also had that experience. So, and I think even at the time you were still creating all of this from your kitchen, right? When you were even fulfilling Whole Foods? Yeah, yeah, in those early days, yes. And then once we started um, getting into the Whole Foods, then realized I needed to go to a commercial kitchen. And so at that point, rented space at a commercial kitchen in Long Island City. And that was kind of our first first little factory. So we were in a food incubator and we were in there for a few years. And then as we grew, um, got a bigger space within there, a bigger and bigger space, then finally outgrew that and 
found our current um, factory in Brooklyn, which is where we make all of our own gum. Yeah. And I'm so curious because we're pretty hands-on right now with our manufacturing process. And I'm also curious because I know you still handle the manufacturing yourself. And that's like another business in itself. I'm like, wow, it must be so easy to like have a co-packer that manages everything. Like what a different world, right? But you also have been very hands-on. So I'm curious in those early days when it was just you, you know, I know you didn't have a lot of help. You're managing the sales, you're running the operations. Who was managing the the production aspect? Was it still you as like the lead or did you hire someone early on there? So once we went to the commercial kitchen, I knew that I was going to be too busy to actually make the gum and go out and do sales and everything else. Um, So at that point, and again, this was at a point where we were getting orders, right? So like those first few thousand packs of gum I made in my own kitchen. But once we were in multiple Whole food stores and little mom and pops in New York, we're starting to get orders. It was like, okay, now we've really got um, some demand here. And so um, hired a guy who uh, was just a young guy, thanks straight out of college. Again, I was, I raised at that point, I'd raised money from angels, but it wasn't much. And so I uh, was still very much in that bootstrap kind of mentality um, and to just hired this young guy who had worked in a few restaurants. And so I figured, okay, well, he's worked in some restaurants. I'll give him the formula. He can make the gum. And that's what he did. So he's the one who, uh, you know, stood in that factory all day long and made some gum. And that's, that was the beginning. Those were the early days. Yeah. I, I don't know. It's probably funny it to look all back by on hand. It. We didn't what have any it? machines at that point. It was all by hand. Oh there my gosh. Point, so wow well it's great that you found someone and you found a way to do it and it's it's cool to hear because I mean depending on your product right you can't just always make something from a commercial kitchen it just depends on what you're creating but it's a good option because I didn't even know what a commercial kitchen was it was actually my friend who has a cookie business that I was talking about my product who was like why don't you look into commercial kitchens because I could not find a co-packer like early on. And I was like, what is that? So it's just, it's cool to talk about because it's a good option if you're creating some kind of a food product in those early days, you know, obviously you can't super, super scale there, but it's still a good like stepping stone for people. Um, and it's been super helpful for us. So I love to hear that. And, you know, you mentioned you raised a small round from angels. How was that experience for you? Kind of raising money, asking for money? Was it different, unique? Did you get rejections? Like how was that time frame? Yeah, I got, um, of course, got rejections. Yeah, of course, got a lot of rejections. And but the rejections were all very nice. I mean, it's always mm-hmm. like, okay, um, I think that everyone liked the idea. It was more like, okay, well, this is a bit early for us. You know, once you're in more stores, come back um, and that type of thing. And then once, so I kind of had a bunch of conversations. And then once I got one person to commit, then the rest just really followed, right? Because then he told his friends and then, you know, then it was like, okay, well, we have these people in. So then, okay, then I want to be in. And like everyone says, you know, once you get that first kind of anchor, then everyone else just, you know, easily latches on. So, uh, but you know, it took, yeah, it took definitely a few months to do that process. It wasn't super difficult, but yeah, but had my share of rejections too. Yeah. I mean, and probably it wasn't as difficult because you kind of proved the concept, right? Yeah, I had a real thing that people could taste and see at that point. It wasn't just abstract. And so I think that was definitely helpful. Mm -hmm. I love that. And going back to kind of you owning your own factory, you know, even now for the gum, at least like that's not something you hear quite a lot. So tell me more about the intention around still maintaining your own factory for the gum. For the gum initially, it was because we had no choice. There was no one who was 
natural gum. Uh, now there is, you know, now 10 years later, there are co-manufacturers out there who do make natural gum, but we like having control over our own, our own process. It gives us a lot of flexibility. It gives us a lot of, uh, a lot of options and there is a cost benefit as well, right? Because you're not being a middleman. So it is cheaper for us to do it ourselves. The margins are better. That being said, it comes with its own host of headaches, right? Of course, being a manufacturer, um, we are now though for our new products using co-manufacturers. Um, and so we now have a hybrid where we do the gum ourselves and we do co-manufacturers for our new products. And let me tell you the co-manufacturer world, even though you're not doing it yourself, there are a lot of challenges there too. So, um, you know, I think I was surprised at actually how many headaches come with co-manufacturers because that's not something I was really aware of. I thought it would be much simpler. Uh, and in some ways it is. I mean, you're not having to run your own factory, but you're also at the whim of someone else. And I think that lack of control has been hard. Yes. Ugh. I mean, the, and what would be maybe some of the challenges that you face? Because it's interesting. You would think it would be a little bit easier to outsource it, have someone do it, but I could imagine there would be some things, but are there a few that you can kind of share with? Yeah. It's about, I mean, of course, you know, the co-manufacturer has other clients as well. And so if you need something, you know, suddenly, you know, you got an order from Whole Foods or Target and you need 10,000 units of X done, you know, in three weeks, they're like, oh, we have a full production calendar. We can slot you in four months from now. And you're like, wait a minute. No, no, no. I need this in a month. And so fighting for, for production time uh, when they have calendars from other clients that have been, you know, set in place for months, that's a very difficult thing. So um, I think lead times are difficult. Doing things on the fly, that's really difficult. And at our stage, we still get sudden increases in demand. There are a lot of fluctuations because we might get a new account that we didn't anticipate. And then suddenly we need that product, right? So I think that's been really hard to manage. And then also the product quality, because we, of course, really care about our quality. And there are situations where, you know, something's not produced up to par, where we have to then get rid of that product. And so... Mm -hmm. Those are all um, difficult conversations to have, but yeah, it's, it's, it's just part of the co-manufacturing thing. Yeah. So we're, we're learning a lot now as we go through that process. It's so interesting. I was listening to, I can't remember which podcast, but they were saying how, I guess this person's mentor who is pretty big in business, I don't know who it was. They didn't mention it, was saying that one of the biggest advice he gave him was in business, there's always problems. That's just part of it. And I feel like it's so basic, but true. Like if you know you're starting something, I mean, even at your level, you're dealing with stuff. I can't imagine you get an order and you're not slotted in to get it. But as the founder, like you need to make sure that you, you know, they get it done. And so I'm curious because so much of this role, even from the early days, is just getting something across a finish line. And I think that's a skill set that anyone can foster, you know, even if you don't have your business yet, but it's so key. So when you're in those moments where there isn't like a straight answer, right? Like you're just in this situation where I don't know, maybe we can talk about like you get a PO, it's a big order, you don't want to say no, and you have to kind of manage that relationship with your co-packer. How are you getting that done? Or like, what mindset do you have? And maybe it could be another challenge, but anything there. Yeah, I mean, it's exactly what you said. The mindset is 
we need to get this done yeah. <laughs> no matter what. So we are going to get it done. We are not saying no to Target. We're not saying no to Walmart. We're not saying no to Whole Foods. So we have to find a way to get it done. And maybe we need to find a backup co-man. Maybe we need to figure out a commercial kitchen to do it ourselves if need be. But we are going to make this product for this PO. We're going to fill this PO. So that's been my that's been my philosophy. Yeah, totally. It's like you got to make yeah. it work, whatever it is. We, we had our first. Work. We got to make it work. Yeah. Oh my god, yeah. especially for Whole Foods and and being in those big retailers. But before you know, you're now in so many retailers nationwide. Maybe looking back at those earlier experiences when you were trying to get into Target, I know it didn't happen quick and overnight. But any lessons as you kind of reflect back in those early days when you were trying to get into some of these larger retailers. You have to just be persistent. Uh, it took us many years to get into Target. I, you know, I had had, and, and the buyers always roll over. So you might get somewhere with one buyer, then they move to a different desk, and then you're starting from scratch again. So, I mean, it, it took, I don't know. I mean, from when I first made contact to Target to when we finally got in, five or six years maybe. Um, so mm-hmm. a lot of these things just take a lot of time. So you have to just be patient and be persistent, um, even though that's hard. Yeah. It's hard to be patient. It's easy to be persistent, but it's hard to be patient as an entrepreneur. Mm-hmm. But um, what I realized is that with a lot of this stuff, you just have to be patient. And so, but while you're waiting, you still try to prove yourself in other channels. So mm-hmm. it was like, okay, well, we can't get into Target right away, but let's sell as much gum as possible in all the stores that we are in so that our data looks great so that when we go back to the Target buyer each year, we can show them our progress and you know how much we've grown and how well our gum is selling. And, um, and then ultimately those data points are what help you get in. So you just have to keep you know trying each year. And with food, it's very long sales cycles because they only look at the category once a year. So they say no this year, then you've got to wait until next year to try again. Mm-hmm. So it does take a long time. I love that. I think there's, I mean, I'm only three years in my journey, but I've obviously interviewed so many incredible women like you who are way ahead of me. And I feel like so much of business, this might be a very big Blake statement. It's just like being patient and persistent. Like you just got to keep going. You got to not give up. You just keep going. Yeah. Do you agree yeah. with that? Yeah. That's exactly what it is. That's exactly what it is. Yeah. So it just Everything reminds is me. longer than you think it will from, that's true. you know, we, we now have um, a new line of chocolates and I thought that it would take a year to make these chocolates. You know, it took years to make the chocolates um, and to get them launched. So everything just takes longer than you think it will. And now we're getting them into stores and that process is taking a long time. Just everything takes a lot of time when you're dealing with a physical product. So that's something that you have to just remind yourself about. It's not a tech company that has some kind of software. Um, that's a different thing entirely. You know, we're dealing with real products, real physical products that take time to actually physically manufacture and make. And it's just a completely different world. Totally. And I'm curious, I don't think I had asked you, so I'm circling back a little bit, but what point did you officially leave your job and you were doing this full time? Once I raised the money. Okay. Got it. Got yeah. it. Once I raised that angel money, once we had gotten into those initial stores and I raised the money and then it was like, okay, now, now I can quit. And I paid myself a small salary. Um, you know, definitely, of course, took a pay cut. Uh, yeah. It was a small salary from that initial fundraise, but it was what, at that point, I was, I was confident that I could get this to be something. So yeah, but that's what it took for me. That's what I needed to feel secure enough to quit 
my job. Exactly. And I love it. And I love that because you were doing it on the side. You were proving out the concept. You did like the preliminary product. You got it into Whole Foods and then you took the leap. Because a lot of people think, you know, starting a business, like you have to love risk. And you started the podcast saying like, I'm actually pretty risk adverse. And I think I am too. Like I think about A, B, C, D, E, F. I'm like, if this doesn't work, we'll do this. And um, so I just love to share that because some people might not think that they're naturally entrepreneurial, but it can look just in so many different ways. And I love how you kind of walk through your thought process around taking that leap. And I'm curious, you know, you were someone that was clearly moving up the ranks, I'm sure financially doing pretty well at the time. Was that pay cut a big shift for you or what was your mindset around that? Yeah, I mean, it was, and I, but I think that I was mentally prepared for it and I, I was okay with that because yeah. I wanted to go and, and try this on my own. And, and there were things also about, there were trade-offs I felt that non-monetary trade-offs that I felt would be worthwhile. So being able to be my own boss and having the flexibility around working hours and all that sort of freedom that comes with being an entrepreneur. I felt like, okay, I don't mind taking this pay cut because I'm going to be getting all these other things that I've always wanted. And so to me, it was worth it Mm -hmm. to do that. I love it. No, it, it is so true. You're just like, to manage my own time. It's funny because I, I, you know, being in the world of finance too, and then working at startups, I was working all the time and I'm like, okay, what would it look like if I put this time and to did something I was actually passionate about? Right. And it feels very different. Like, yes, I also took a pay cut, but there's something very amazing about doing something that you love. Like you're just like, forget the money. I don't even care what people say. I don't care about the status. Like you're just all about it. So I love that. And I wish that for everyone is like, find something that truly excites you and that you're passionate about because it could help so much in in that like transitionary process, which I think is one of the hardest to officially take the leap. I was listening to you in another podcast and you actually mentioned something so interesting that also was kind of a highlight for me that I know was an aha moment for you too. I think you mentioned that when you were just starting out the business, you were talking to a friend who had a significantly larger company, I think like over a hundred million. And you're asking him like, if he still stays up at night or has worries, tell me more about that story because it also was an aha moment for me, just talking to women here and also some friends who are, you know, far ahead than me. Yeah. I, he said he absolutely did ha- stay up at night worrying. And it's funny because, you know, you think, oh, well, if I only get to 10 million or if only I get to 50 million and then, you know, at a certain point, yeah. uh, everything's going to be okay and I will have made it. Right. But I realized, wow, you know, he's at a hundred, over a hundred million sales and he's worried every night, you know, something could go wrong. This account that's worth 30 million might discontinue him. And then what, you know, it's just more problems. Yeah. Bigger problems. So that was really uh, eye-opening as well. So it really doesn't end ever. <laughs> yeah, I know. I, well, I was just going to ask you, as someone who clearly is year, you know, 10 years down, like how has the problems really shifted for you from those early days to now, obviously being a little bit more established? Yeah, that's right. It's a good qu- question. I mean, I think now it's less about are we going to run out of money tomorrow and mm-hmm. go out of business, which you know, at the beginning, that's what you're you're worried about. Are we even going to make it? Can we even get to the kind of a sustainable level? Now um, that we're there, it's different, but it's about growth and you, you want to keep going and you want new products and you want to get those new products out. And so it's, I mean, in some ways it's different, but it's still a lot of the same problems that I think about it, right? It's about, I mean, in our case, it's about trying to really get our products out there, 
more sales, more marketing, more awareness, making sure that all of our new products have the same amazing packaging and the same, you know, product excellence. It really is the same in many ways. And now we have a larger organization so that you have to layer on people on top of that. So now we actually have people to manage. And so making sure the, or, you know, the systems are there and the processes and the organizational structure and all of that, that starts coming into play. So there are more things to think about now. And so I would say, you know, it's not the kind of stress of, oh, is the company going to go out of business tomorrow? But it's still, okay, well, how can we grow? How can we get to the next phase? How can we get to the next stage? Still still plenty of stress. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And I mean, and adding the people layer is like a whole other ball game. It's different when it's like you people. and two people. I mean, even, I mean, we're so small. There's like five, six people, some part-time. So it's still not, you know, big. And I'm like, oh, I could, I'm already seeing like the importance of managing people and how it's more time. So I can't even imagine you get to 10 you know, 15, 20, it's a lot of, I knew the importance of it, but I didn't understand how much like mental space it takes from like the CEO to just kind of make sure like everyone is working in tandem. They're, it's like, an, you're like an orchestra, you're like the conductor, you know? <laughs> so I can imagine. And I'm curious because obviously, you know, at whatever stage you are in a business, it is all encompassing. So how do you kind of create those breaks in your life. You know, I don't like the word balance because it could look so different for everyone, but how do you kind of create that space in your mind away from the business to kind of maintain your own mental health? I have two toddlers now uh, who are three and one and a half. Oh, and nice. that's also been um, sort of a forcing function in a way because I have no choice. They take, they demand so much in terms of my time and attention that I have no choice but to take breaks in the evening and help with dinner and bedtime and on the weekend, taking them to the park or the museum. And so right now it's very much, you know, when I'm not working, it's spending time with them, but they help give me that balance because when I'm with them, it's all consuming and I'm not actually able to even think of anything else that's going yeah. on. So, uh, so it is kind of an interesting balance in that sense. I love that. It's funny. We don't have any kids yet, but when you don't have kids, you just have all the time in the world, right? Like some people look at me and they're like, you work at night. I mean, listen, I'm not hardcore working at night, but I enjoy it. And I'm thinking about it. I'm sending an email. I come up with an idea to check. Like you just have all this time to fill up with the business. And you know, the list is never ending. So there's always something on your mind. But when you have kids, it's like you actually cannot fit, like you can't work, like you have to be focused on them. So I can imagine that being a really good shift, you know, and a, and a nice break, even though I'm sure it's still tough. And you know, you have to be there for them as well, which, you know, running a business and, and being a mother, I'm sure it, it's a whole nother ballgame, but it is a nice break and like a different part of your brain that you're operating <laughs> Exactly. Exactly. So amazing. And I guess I'm curious, you know, with, I did not know you had um, two toddlers. That's amazing. So I'm sure you're super busy, but ha has that shifted anything for you in terms of like how you run the business, how you think about the business since you've had kids? Yeah. I mean, I think, um, well, I mean, just in terms of the day to day, I think that, um, you know, when we going back to one of the reasons why I wanted to be an entrepreneur and, and being able to have my own schedule and uh, flexibility, that's really now come, become, you know, something that I utilize daily. So, you know, I, I do, so my husband does drop off and I do pick up. And so, you know, everyone knows that between three and four, I'm not available because I'm doing uh, pick up from school, but 
I, you know, therefore work when I come home and, and so forth and after the kids go to bed. And so just having that flexibility, I think has really helped me manage that, that work-life balance with having the two toddlers. So I'm very grateful, you know, to be in that position where I can have that sort of flexibility. Sure. I know it's the biggest gift. Um, I think about like the days in banking, right? You're, and I remember women would like, pump. I never knew even what that was like in the room and between meetings. And I look back, I'm like, Oh my God, that is so stressful for your body and the amount of travel that's there. So it is a big gift. And hopefully, you know, I know people still are going into the office, but you know, post COVID, hopefully things are more remote. There's more flexibility, hopefully for women. But yeah, I always think about those corporate, corporate days. And I'm like, my gosh, it is not easy being a woman there. (laughs) I love asking this question and we've kind of talked about a few different themes around it already, but what do you think is a messy truth that no one really talks about when it comes to starting a business? <sighs> I mean, there's just so many messy truths, I think. Oh, I mean, I think people are now may be aware of it, but it's, there is, there's a glamorous aspect, but there's a lot of non-glamorous yeah. aspects to it, right? I mean, it's like I said, those late nights and the stress and, um, you know, I think one thing that, you know, in my case with being um, bootstrapped is that we um, wear multiple hats. And so look, even now, 10 years later as CEO, there are times when if need be, I am packing samples in our warehouse, right? And that's stuff that people don't talk about. You know, there are times when our whole teams had to pitch in and pack up boxes and help make the gum or, you know, whatever it may be. And so um, I think wearing those multiple hats and doing even those small menial tasks, there is a lot of that that I still have to do even as CEO now. No, that, that's good to hear because obviously I'm very much involved in all that and you think when you get bigger, but just to confirm, so you just raised an angel round. You guys haven't done any other raises after that? No, yeah, we did that angel. We did it, well, we sort of did it in two tranches. We did a little okay. angel round and then we did a follow-on um, a year later and that was it. And so that Amazing. was, you know, eight years ago or whatever. And we haven't had to raise more because- we are profitable, which I know is unusual for um, for small companies. But yeah, so we haven't had to raise more, but that's, yeah, that's where we yeah, are. Yeah, but it just shows like you being lean, scrappy. And I feel like as the founder, like the buck stops at you. Like not only do you need to figure out how to get it done, but like you, you're, you are there making sure it is actually done. So like jumping in the factory, like yesterday we, I was at my factory. We have a team, but I'm still kind of there managing it. And I was taking all these calls you know, cause I'm still having meetings and you see behind me just like manufacturing stuff and everyone's yeah. like, Oh wow. That's like startup life. I'm like, welcome to CEO world. It is not sexy at exactly. all. You know, like I'm managing both, but it was just funny because the background was not like glamorous by any means. And everyone's like, Oh, happy president's day. You're there. I'm like, yes, <laughs> but amazing. And so I'm so excited to hear more about your new products. I actually did not know that you guys have introduced them. So I'd love to hear more about everything that you guys are up to. So, uh, so we started with the gum. We quickly went to mints and so gum and mints have been with us for a while, but just, uh, this past year, we've now launched two new categories. One is a chocolate date bar. So it's a candy bar reinvented Instead of the artificial ingredients and fillers, we use dates, very simple ingredient list. Everything we do is now about simplicity. 
So our positioning is, you know, we're the unusually simple brand making unusually simple products. And so the ingredients are just chocolate and dates and peanuts. And so it's a delicious, better for you bar um, that we hope people will really like. And that's now sold at smaller stores across the country, but um, we will be getting into some big retailers hopefully later this year. And then the uh, second category are fruit gummies. So we all know gummies. That's been um, a hot trend over the past few years, but our gummies are made with real fruit puree. So instead of gelatin and the artificial fruit flavors, we're actually using real fruit. Those fruit bites, and by the way, both of these can be sold, our art can be found on our website and on Amazon. But in terms of um, retailers, the fruit bites you can find at select Walmart stores right now and at um, some regional chains across the country. So I, I can understand going from gums and then introducing mints. And how did you think about let's completely pivot and create the gummies and the bar? It's very, it's two different product lines. So how did that kind of come about? So it came about um, because I've always felt like our brand can extend, right? Because it's such, I mean, it's called Simply and it's so beautiful and it stands for something that really resonates with people. And so it was during COVID, actually, that I thought, you know, why are we just doing gum when we can actually be all across the candy aisle doing all kinds of things? Um, at the time, gum was doing really poorly because everyone was oh, interesting. at home and not, um, yeah, they didn't need gum because everyone was social distancing and staying at home. And so the gum as a category really went down during COVID. And that's when we accelerated our efforts to um, do R&D into these new products because we were like, hey, you know, we can actually be in any category we want in confections. Why are we limiting ourselves? So, um, so that's how it started. And so they've just launched and we're now excited to do even more launches. We're working on very fun um, new products as well. And so, yeah, so our goal now is to be uh, your candy brand that you turn to in in all types of candy. I love it. Well, I'm so excited. And how cool that the idea for you guys to expand came in COVID. Like, you know, there's always an opportunity if things aren't going well, it just requires you to think differently. So that is entrepreneurship 101 and a great leader. So very cool that you have pivoted. And I'm just so excited for you guys. I love the branding. I love the, you know, simplicity and the clean aspect of your products. And can't wait to see how else you guys grow. But Karone, thank you so, so much for being here today and sharing your story. That was so much fun. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Behind Her Empire. If you enjoyed this conversation, it would mean the world to me if you would consider leaving a review or even sharing this episode with someone who might be inspired to create their own empire. To stay updated on new episodes or join our private community, visit BehindHerEmpire.com to sign up. We send inspiring and short emails every week to your inbox. I'll see you next week. And until then, remember, you're always in charge of your own destiny and it's never too late to start your own empire. <laughs>